Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, security sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house and giving out prescriptions for better financial health and making smart decisions with your money. We give common sense solutions to your complex problems. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner and an investment advisor with over 19 years' experience in providing financial planning and investment advice. And I'm John Travis. I have an MBA in finance, also am a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider and have over 20 years in helping corporations and individuals with planning. We're excited to have you listening to us today on our weekly radio show. We are right here every Saturday like today from 9 to 10 a.m. You can also go to our website, moneymd.net. We have a link um, in the top right-hand corner. So, Steve, you can listen to us. Um, a lot of people listen to us just in their kitchen, kind of hanging out. Obviously, 1230 a.m. is where you locate us on the dial. But uh, there's some other ways as well. Yeah, I mean, you know, I love to listen to us on the smartphone um, because you can carry that around in your pocket anywhere you go, right? Just flipping those headphones or or over your ear, however you do it. And, uh, you know, so you can download the TuneIn radio app to do that. That's a great way to listen. And if you get the upgrade version, you can even set the record. Mm -hmm. So you can just record us and listen to us anytime you like. So that's a TuneIn radio app. So that's one way of doing it. Um, also, like you mentioned, you can log on to our website. Um, we'd love to have you uh, listen to us there and email us your questions. That's moneymd.net. So check us out there. Um, but we'd love to have your questions. So you can email us directly as well at info at moneymd.net. Well, John, I think we have an awesome show lined up for the day, as usual. Very, very timely. All about investments today. Yes, we're kind of diving, going deep on yeah, investments. Yeah, going a little bit deeper on investments. But, you know, this is pretty simple stuff, though, but very, very important stuff mm-hmm. that the average person just doesn't get. Yeah. So we're going to start off here with the five rookie investing mistakes to avoid. Mm-hmm. See these often. These are critical, you know, and it's amazing how many times the average person it just it gets half of these wrong, mm-hmm. you know, and, and so it happens all the time. It can sink your retirement. Yeah, absolutely. Pay attention to these. Yeah, get that notepad out with that, that uh, pencil or pen and take some notes. Yeah, this is a good one. And then we're going to lead right into, you know, a couple more. Yeah, we've got one on diversification made simple. Uh, you know, we talk about diversification, Steve, and you hear that word out there um, in the industry. And we're going to kind of define what that looks like. And, and we have a definition, and there's a definition we're going to give today from an article that we came across. It's pretty good. And uh, we're going to kind of dive into that and give you some tips on on how to diversify your portfolio. And then we're going to end up uh, with an article about um, pensions. You know, we see pension is a dying benefit. I mean, fortunately, some people have great pensions. If you've been out at the site or, you know, one of the local uh, institutions, government facilities. Um, But we're seeing a lot of strain on pensions. And there's an article about uh, New Jersey and uh, how people are double dipping um, in there. And it's really putting stress on there. So one of many reasons why pension plans are sinking across the nation. Yes. uh, So that's a great article. And so from a planning standpoint, you got to be careful that you're planning, you know, 100% of what they're telling you. 
So anyway, we'll we'll dive into that one in a little bit. And uh, so we got a great show lined up. Yeah, we sure do. We're going to start off here, though, with the financial fact of the week. Yeah, this is uh, 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 the source is the Department of Commerce. That's that's where we got this from. And uh, the personal savings rate in the United States in 1973, Steve, was about 13 percent. Wow, those are the days. Those were the good old those days. Those were the good old days. 13 percent. Yeah, can you can you guess what it is now? Uh, let me guess, a little less than that. Yes. Just a tiny bit less. About 4% in total. I mean... You know, I'm surprised we're saving anything as a country. Um, I wonder if that's... I wonder if they're, I guess they're including 401k plans, and that's probably where all that comes from. Well, you know, they're looking at after-tax income, um, you know, coming yeah. into into the uh, into the household. So it, it doesn't specifically say if it's 401k, but uh, I've seen some some stats that show it's a negative savings rate. So it probably right, right. probably does include that. But uh, it's big difference, big change in mindset. 1973, 13%, and and uh, more recently, uh, you know, close to 4%, and. You know, that's, people um, have to get back to the mindset of saving money seriously because, you know what, I mean, it should be the opposite, in fact, because back then people had pensions, right? Mm-hmm. You could expect to have something coming in from when you retired. Today, even Social Security is questionable yeah. for young people. Yep. So you got to be saving 10 or 15% today. Yeah, I you mean, 3.8% ain't a get or done. No. You got to make it a priority. So that's um, that's a tough financial fact. Sorry to start sure off on is. such a, a downer. Well, that's a good one. That's a good one. Well, speaking of downers here, we're going to start off here though with the, an article um, out of uh, the Wall Street cheat sheet off the internet here. And this is a great article though. It's the five rookie investing mistakes to avoid. Yeah, we see these. We see frequently. these all the time. I mean, these are things that that you know just just. New investors stumble into, even experienced investors. I mean, these aren't just rookie mistakes. These Mm -hmm. are mistakes that are even made by professionals, um, you know, at some level. So, yeah, you want to pay attention to these. I mean, investors um, are usually their own worst enemies. I mean, that's that's true in a lot of things, but Mm -hmm. it's particularly true with investing. You know, as investors... Um, we often struggle with the pitfalls and the fear, uh, the pitfalls of fear and greed, right? I mean, those are the two emotions that have the potential to inflate, impact, uh, and inflict more damage to your portfolio than anything in the economy mm-hmm. by far. You know, however, I mean, you can mitigate these risks by avoiding some of these common mistakes that we're going to cover here in a second. Yeah, Steve, the, the, you know, the cost of emotions play uh, a role in, in your portfolio, and it's very expensive. I mean, there's a – we've talked about this before. Um, Dalbar, um, uh, there's, they're a company that measures investor behavior. They have a, a quantitative analysis that they do every single year, and they look yeah. back 10 years and they look back 20 years. And um, the average investor that we see earns significantly less than the major benchmarks. I mean, it shows it year after year after year. Over the past 10 years, investors in equities funds earned an average of about 5.9% compared to the average gain for the S&P 500 of 7.4%. And that's a 10-year average. When you look at the gap for uh, the, the last 20 years, it's even more significant than that. I mean, so a percent and a half less over 10 years adds up to tremendous amounts of money. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you know when you look at the twenty-year numbers, it's even it's a staggering yeah. difference. It is, if I recall, it's, but they don't have it here in this article. It's about half of what the uh, the indexes make. Roughly. Yeah, I mean, it's just crazy. But there's some real good reasons why that happens. But but the 
the Dalbar study, what it tells us is that the greatest losses occur after market decline. Mm-hmm. Okay, investors tend to sell after experiencing the paper losses, and they start investing only after the markets have recovered most of their value. You know, so the devastating results of, of this behavior is um, participation in the downside while being out of the market while it goes up. So we're going to take a look here at, at, you know, some of the reasons for that. So these are the five rookie investing mistakes that you should avoid. Number one here on the list, John, is investing before you're ready. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just to the very basics here. You know, the financial media um, will tell us, and, and this this usually, this makes sense, that we should start investing immediately in order to give our investments more time to grow. You know, nobody can argue with that. However, I mean, there are some basic baby steps, as Dave Ramsey would say, right? Right. That people should take before walking down Wall Street. Yeah, we we tell people sometimes not to invest until they have these done. That's exactly right. Because they're so important. That's exactly right. They are very, very important. You know, and the first one is you need to have an emergency fund Mm -hmm. saved up for at least a couple months of expenses. But actually, the rule of thumb is three to six months of expenses, right. right? I mean, so you got to do that first because if you don't, Something's going to happen, and you're going to have to pull out the credit cards or, or take your investment out, and it's going to be down. And you just can't afford for that to happen. So, you know, that's the first step. Get an emergency fund. Um, you know, invest in something boring like a savings account, um, you know, money market fund. Liquidity will help ensure that you aren't forced to, to do some selling uh, in your portfolio if you haven't invested. And then um, high-interest debt also should be paid off before you start investing. You know, if you're carrying around credit card debt with an interest rate of 15%, um, which is the national average, by the way, Mm, yeah, it really is. I mean, you can essentially make a 15% return risk-free, guaranteed, just by devoting your dollars to paying off that debt instead of investing it in the market. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, the one exception that's widely agreed upon is if you have a 401k plan with an employer that gives you a match, you should take advantage of that free money as soon as possible at the same time you build up your, your emergency fund. Yeah, I will say on that last one, Dave Dave basically says don't invest at all even with the match. Uh, right. A lot of people don't agree with that, and they have problems with that. But uh, he, he wants you to be gazelle intense on getting through the debt, getting that emergency fund set up, and then do the investing. So well, there's different ways to get to the to the final the, goal. Yeah, but, I mean, there certainly can be an argument made for that, no yeah. doubt about it. Yeah. I mean, if you can do both. You know, that's yeah. that's what you I think you should do. Financially it makes sense, but having said that, yeah, you, you gotta you gotta get that debt paid off. You gotta get on that path. You can't just as you know as Dave says, if it's about numbers you wouldn't be in debt in the first place, right? <laughs> that is true. <laughs> and he makes a great point when he says that. Because, yep, yep. you know, people that are have credit card debt usually aren't great at math or if they are they can't really mm-hmm. they can't really abide by it. Right. Right. So that's a good one. Number number two here is not having a plan. Um, you know, we've talked about this, Steve, uh, a lot, and you know, you need to know why you're investing, and uh, have some financial goals out there um, that you want to accomplish with your money. I mean, these can certainly vary among different people, but your financial goals should be uh, clear. They should be measurable and uh, should be realistic. You should be able to attain them, and you know, you've got to recognize the constraints from an income standpoint that you have, and and make sure that you have some things out there that are that are reasonable and attainable. So. Yeah, you got to have a plan, no doubt about that. So we'll talk about that some more when we come back from the break. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. 
or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are continuing our discussion here before the break about the five rookie investing mistakes to avoid. Yeah, and you mentioned this at the start. This is not just for beginners. This is we see seasoned people out there making All these the mistakes. Time. So this All is the really time. the five mistakes to avoid from an investing standpoint. They really are. I mean, they're probably the five most common mistakes mm-hmm. that we run into and you know, number one on the list here, John, that we just talked about was just investing before you're ready. Right. I mean, we see young people doing this all the time. They'll come in, sit down with us, and we meet with young people pro bono all mm-hmm. the time. Sure. Don't charge anything for that. Just, I love getting a young person on the right path. Absolutely. Early, you know, Absolutely. I mean, we can really change their life early on yep. in the process where they have time to do something about it, yep. you know, before they're 55 and, yeah. you know, have $60,000 of credit. So get debt. that emergency fund set up. Number one, right? That's it. Yeah. We sit down with them and it's, it's set up your emergency fund. Don't invest before you're ready. You know, wait till you, to you at least have the emergency fund and you have, um, credit cards paid off the mm-hmm. high interest mm-hmm. debt. You got to get that behind you before you start investing heavily. Um, you might do the 401k plan, but there's debates about that. You know, mm-hmm. if you get a match, that yep. is free money, but you still got to get on the path for the other. And then the other one is not having a plan altogether. Yeah. Um, basically, a- it's not having a goal, not knowing what you're trying to accomplish with your investments, right? I mean, if you go out there and just start investing um, and you don't really have, uh, you know, a set goal and a set investment philosophy of how you're going to invest, then what happens is you're at risk of just being lured into the flavor of the month investments. Oh, yeah. Yep. You know, I mean, far too often investors will rush into a fund with the highest rating or after some oversized gains that have already been realized, um, you know, and then it just happens. And, and in fact, um, that's the way I kind of got started investing. You know, I went to, I think it was Money Magazine. No, it was Consumer Reports. And I picked the fund with the highest return the year before, yeah. and that's the one I put my money into. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was in my 20s. I didn't know yeah. what I was doing, right? And and that was just a high-risk, small-cap fund, and it, it tanked yeah, the they next go, few years. They go in cycles. I mean, that's just the way the market works. There's certain cycles that go through great times, and then they'll be on the bottom for a that's while. That's exactly right. You know, I mean, in fact, the five-star rated funds from Morningstar have the biggest gap over 36 months following their highest rating. Mm-hmm. they high rating um you know and so individuals they shouldn't worry about every headline that comes across on a daily basis they should take the time to review their portfolios throughout the year and on a semi-annual or quarterly basis you know uh, make a 30-minute appointment with yourself and your spouse um to consider how your portfolio is doing um maybe meet with your financial advisor if you have one and make sure you're on track to meet your financial goals you know, that's the way you should invest. I mean, have a plan for what you're trying to accomplish. So that was number two. Number three here on the list is trying to time the market. Mm, yeah. You know, I mean, this is, is just one that every, a killer one. professionals fall into this trap. 
you know, without meaning to. You know, unless you're a day trader and you enjoy gambling away yeah, your money. That's right? not a good solution either. It's not a good solution. If you, unless you enjoy going to Vegas with your with your hard-earned dollars. I mean, you should not be trying to time the market. I mean, with the rise in smartphones and tablets, investors are constantly plugged into the financial markets. But that doesn't mean you should always be doing something with your portfolio. I mean, the average Joe is better off with a diversified portfolio built for the long term. And I would say not even the average Joe, even the experienced professional is. You know, trying to time the market can be disastrous. And, you know, especially when it comes to stocks, I mean, eventually you'll get burned trying to do that. Yeah. You know, as you've heard before, it's it's time in the market is the most important thing, not timing the market. And here's an example that they use here. $10,000 invested between uh, 1993 and 2013, so 20 years, would have grown to, uh, to about $58,000 if it was constantly invested in the S&P 500 index. And, you know, if you if you miss the best 10 days during that period, the investment would have grown to only 29000 or only half the amount if you had simply left the money untouched. And, you know, some critics on the other side say, you know, if you would have missed the worst days, um, you would have had a much better portfolio. But that is a dangerous strategy, Steve. Um, it you know, there, it's been proven no one can predict the markets, and past performance does not predict future you know, gains. So, um, you know, even if you rightly time the market and avoid the worst days, you're left with the agonizing decision of, of when to get back into the market. And so you need to know yourself and your limitations when investing. And that's kind of what we, you know, when we talk about having a plan, it kind of ties into this as well. That's You're right. not in and out trying to time the market or trying to get into certain segments. It's, that can be very dangerous. That's right. There's no way to miss the worst days, you know, consistently, and there's no way to catch the best days. So you just can't time it. It's right. really the bottom line here. Um, and then number four on the list, John, it's expecting too much. You know, some people just don't have an, a realistic view of what the market is returning and what they should be expecting with their investments. But the past few years have really been extraordinary for the market. But investors need to make sure that they have long-term goals and they don't depend on some lofty expectation being sustained over a long period of time. You know, since the Dow Jones Industrial Average made the low back in, in 2009, it was 64.70, the index climbed um, about 10,000 points since mm-hmm, then mm-hmm. and has managed to rally five consecutive years, you know, so it came all the way back from that and it returned over 170% over that period, um, which is pretty amazing. But, you know, that type of performance is not typical. I mean, between 1926 and 2012, stocks had an average return of nearly about 10% for the S&P 500. So, and the inflation-adjusted returns were 6.7%. So, depending on your tax situation, stocks have returned about 4.5% after taxes and inflation mm-hmm. for the average person. Um, so, you know, I mean, stock market clearly has gotten a job done over long periods of time. Cash, CDs, that's the worst place you could be over the long term. It's returned only 0.5% after inflation and negative Point eight percent after taxes and inflation, so mm-hmm. you lost money in fixed income like savings accounts and CDs um, over the long term. Bonds, you know, they've returned about two point three percent after inflation, but I mean that's been skewed by a thirty-year bull market that drove interest rates straight down to the all-time lows. So you know you really can't yeah. you can't go by that. And this go this talks about expecting too much, Steve. But also when you go through a, a tough period like we did in two thousand and eight, people sometimes expect um, nothing. 
and and the, you know the market averages out over time. We we just That's saw right. that uh, historically it's been ten percent. Um, again, past performance doesn't predict future results, but you know this. It, you know, in order to make those kind of returns, you have to stay invested typically um, over time, and so that's a good one. Number five here on the list is making investments more complicated than what they have to be. Yeah, I, mean, I love this one. I tell you because I mean this is so true. You know, uh, people try to make things way more complicated. Yeah, humans have a tendency to make life more complicated than necessary, and unfortunately, I think technology adds to that. It, it helps some things out, but it also speeds it up as well. But you know, the same is true about investing. There's plenty, uh, already plenty of risk when it comes to investing, but many people complicate matters by using leverage. And uh, leverage is basically uh, you borrow money to put that in it's to the debt, market. So adding debt to your investment. That's right. So when leverage works, it magnifies your gains, and your spouse thinks you're clever, and your neighbors get envious. And this is by a, a quote from uh, Warren Buffett back in his 2010 shareholder letter. But leverage is addictive, he says. Once um, having profited from its wonders, very few people retreat to a more conservative practice. And as we all learned in the third grade, and some of us you know, relearned back in 2008, any series of positive numbers, however impressive the numbers may be, evaporates when multiplied by a single zero, right? Yeah. And um, you know, he goes on to say, history tells us that leverage all too often produces zeros, even when it's employed by very smart people. So got to be very, very, very care- careful. It's, that's a dangerous way to invest. Yeah, I mean, that's so true. It's like doubling down into Vegas, you know. I mean, eventually you're going to walk away with nothing. Yeah. And so you only use leverage in your portfolio. He goes on, they go on to talk about uh, leverage exchange-traded funds. Um, they're kind of a new financial product. I mean, the bottom line is when it comes to leverage, if you hear the word leveraged or you hear the word uh, derivative, uh, you know, anything that implies that it's that it's leveraging like that or mm-hmm. some kind of options, just stay away from that. You don't need to make it complicated. Just diversify, right? Just just get a diversified portfolio of index-like funds that get asset class rates of return and rebalance it. Yeah. It's really that simple. Yeah, it doesn't have to be complicated. Most people do try to make it complicated. And quite frankly, when you look at you know the, the thousands and thousands of mutual funds out there, it is complicated. I mean, that's it, one it, it reason can't. why people come to us that's and say, right. help me. I don't know where to invest my money. I don't know which mutual fund to use or which stocks or should I be doing this or that. Uh, the industry has made it very complicated. But to be successful, like we talked about, it really doesn't. You can you can get good diversified uh, portfolios and do some rebalancing, and that's worked fairly well historically. We think it's going to work going forward, but just the KISS principle, right? Keep it simple. simple. That's yep. it. Yeah, and don't try to time the market. Don't expect too much. Have reasonable expectations. You've got to have a plan for how you're going to invest and what you're trying to accomplish. And don't invest before you're ready. Make sure you have that emergency fund and you have the credit cards paid off before you you start investing in the stock market. So, all right. Well, that leads up to our break here. But if you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net. Or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. We'll be right back with these messages and GNA News. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are going to lead off our second segment of the uh, show here with the question of the week. Yes, Steve, this question we get frequently. I mean, we get it weekly. Um, 
you know, if not daily. But, you know, the question is, is people come in and they say, am I on track for retirement? And basically that means is how much income am I going to need, you know, in retirement? And so this right. question is, is how much income will I need in retirement if my wife and I make a $100,000 combined? So that's a pretty pretty routine question, and there's not an exact answer. I mean, rule of thumb is between 60 and 80% of your right. income for retirement, but it depends on debt levels. We see a lot of people going into um, retirement with mortgages or car payments, credit cards. That may increase the amount that you need. Sure. If you have no debt at all, then you know 60% may be, may be good. It also depends on how much money you have in after-tax money, Roth accounts. You know, brokerage accounts, That's things right. like that. So it, it really is dependent upon the situation. But sixty to eighty percent is a reasonable target. Yeah. So hundred thousand dollars, they might need eighty thousand. Mm-hmm. Probably be a real safe number. Yeah. Because um, yeah. you won't be paying Social Security, and that's seven point six percent. Won't be putting money in the four hundred one k plan. That might be another six or nine percent. So you know, I mean, it adds up, and and you're typically in a lower tax bracket, but. Yeah. Yeah, uh, but you really need to do planning, right? Because it depends on your situation. It does. depends so, on your plans. Yeah. What do you plan to do in retirement? Some people have expensive hobbies. Yeah. You know, they want to yeah. vacation and travel well, everywhere. So buy a new place and move somewhere. Yeah. And, you know, your habits change. They want to do a lot of traveling. So, yeah, yeah. you just got to figure out what you're going to be doing and do some real planning behind that. And you can call us. We, we help you people with that all the time. Yep, that's right. So uh, give us a call if we can help. Okay, um, that leads us up to our next topic here, and that is an article on diversification. Mm-hmm. And I don't know the type, the name. Diversification of it. made simple. There you go. Diversification made simple. Yeah, CNN Money article, um, good article, and it, this is pretty detailed from an investment standpoint. But so one of the things so many people get wrong, Steve, that we thought we would want to cover it today. And you know, if you've reached this this stage on the road to wealth, you've um, presumably taken the first step, which is um, you know towards diversifying your portfolio, and that's deciding how much of your portfolio to allocate to stocks and how much to allocate to bonds. And, uh, you know, now it's time to refine that portfolio, get a little, a little bit more um, detailed with it and um, make sure that you're broadly diversified and uh, kind of reach for a little bit higher return. So, and this is based on, on history. And so we're not trying to predict the future uh, with any of this you know, right. commentary. We're just looking back at history. And this is not specific investment advice. No, right. it's not. This is just generally how you should structure your investments if you're trying to get a higher return, get better diversification. That's right. This is just some of the uh, some of the details that we see out there. And CNN Money uh, sees it as well. So go beyond blue chips is the first one. You know, Many investors, Steve, will choose to purchase stocks uh, through a mutual fund that holds mostly large uh, company stocks. Uh, or, or maybe one that tracks an index like the S&P 500. Um, that's a list of the 500 most, most valuable public corporations. And that generally makes sense. You definitely want to have that in your portfolio. But, you know, blue chip stocks represent about 75% of the value of the U.S. market. But that leaves out another 25% that you probably don't want to miss out on. Um, because in many years, shares of small and mid-sized companies outperform, you know, the big ones. And they have a, a list here in, in CNN of some of the things they, they uh, recommend. And, um, but, you know, Steve, I think, you know, portion, you know, choosing a core holding that includes a full spectrum of U.S. stocks as well. Um, they're called total stock market index funds. Includes large, also includes small. But, right. you know, the first one here on the list is, you know, we see a lot of times people just own U.S. large stocks, which is a great asset class to, to own. But there's sure. a lot of other ones out there. Sure. I mean, you definitely want to have that in your portfolio in a significant amount. And that's a great place to start. Um but then number two here on the list is consider a tilt, okay, because there's a large body of research that's shown 
that it's very difficult for stock pickers to outperform the market. Um, so if you're trying to improve your return, stock picking, as we just mentioned in the yeah. previous yeah. segment, is not the way to do it. Neither is market timing. Right. So um, but some of the same researchers have identified a few patterns in, in the historic stock market returns that will help you to carve out extra gains over the long run. Um, you know, both small stocks and value stocks, that is, those companies that trade at low prices relative to their earnings or their book value. Um, they have proven to improve your return over the long haul. And so tilting toward value and tilting toward yeah. small are the ways to do that. And, again, Steve, we just want to make sure, we, you know, we're looking at historical, um, not trying to predict the future. You know, we think it's going to be that way in the future, but no one knows for sure. So we're just looking at historical stocks or historical indexes, and that's what CNN Money has done on this. And, you know, small stocks have bested blue chips by an annualized two percentage points since 1927. I mean, we're talking about a long period of time right. here, and that's according to uh, to Morningstar data. And about the same is true of large company value shares over pricier large growth stocks. And so the big winners, when you combine those two together, stocks that are both small and value in nature. So and I would just say, value. I mean, two percent is a huge difference. Oh, it's okay? it's massive over time. Yeah, I mean, if you can increase your return by two percent on part of your portfolio, that's worth doing. Yeah. Now it's important to understand also that the you know the extra return isn't without a little bit of downside, right? Smaller companies it's risk provide a high uh, average return uh, because they're a little bit riskier. You know, likewise, value stocks. They're, they're priced low because the market sees some trouble ahead for the company, and portfolios tilted towards small in value sometimes underperform the market for, for years. So this strategy requires some patience. But, you know, Steve, you can tilt your portfolio by beefing up your, your stake in small cap fund or adding a value-focused fund to your core holdings. And, um, you know, historically it's been a, a great add to the portfolio. It's been a good opportunity to increase some returns associated with it. But you got to make sure it's right for your situation. That's right. And there's another aspect of that. Um, number three here says don't forget your passport. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. That's yep. a good intro for it. I mean, U.S. markets – they represent only about a third of the world's equities by market value. That doesn't mean you you should you should not own uh, you should own mostly foreign securities, but the rest of the world's markets include some very risky places to invest. So you don't want to put all your money over there. But many advisors recommend keeping about thirty percent or a third of your portfolio in international mutual funds or ETFs. Um, you know, I, I would also recommend international, small, and emerging mm-hmm. markets. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can diversify within internationals further, too, and also pick up the higher returns that those offer. I mean, one of the big reasons, though, for diversification is foreign markets, they don't move in step with U.S. markets, right? They don't have a perfect correlation with U.S. markets. So by further spreading out your risk, you're able to avoid some of the volatility without sacrificing return because they move kind of, yeah. you know, opposite of that's one right. another sometimes. Yeah, and, and you mentioned the emerging markets funds. I mean, there's, there's places like China, Latin America, and frequently, Steve, they, you know, they, they sport impressively high returns in good years, but, you know, often that comes at the cost of extreme volatility. So if you want to, to reach for those extra gains, go with a fund maybe that, that it diversifies broadly across different emerging markets or, or simply hold a foreign fund that includes some emerging 
emerging markets is a part of the strategy. So, you know, make sure that when you when you diversify internationally that you, that you have different segments associated with that. Yeah, and I would just point out, I mean, if you look at the returns, I looked at them this morning. For the last 10 years, the S&P 500 has returned about 7.4% mm-hmm. through the end of last year. Um, emerging markets, the MSCI Emerging Markets Index returned 11.5%. So, you know, it's a big difference. That's 4% higher return. So diversification can help you over long periods of time. Mm -hmm. Adding some of that to your portfolio would have helped your return over the last 10 years. It certainly doesn't prevent a loss, but it helps. I mean, these these different asset classes do different things at different times. That's really what diversification is about. That's right. And the last one here on the list, Steve, is, is diversify your bonds. I mean, you know, keep money you expect to be tapping relatively soon in bonds, keep them short maturities uh, or short duration, as they're also known. Um, You know, for longer-term holdings, I'd be careful going long-term with with bonds um, uh, from an intermediate standpoint. Um, You know, you can have a little bit higher yields, but, Steve, we're in a very low interest rate environment right now. So um, what we kind of believe and we think is a, a good strategy is, is to have short-term, high-quality bonds and and stay right. away from long-term bonds because as interest rates rise, uh, that'll that'll hurt the uh, the capital, you know, the investment in the bond. And so, yeah, and unfortunately, that runs contrary to this last suggestion they have here, and that is you can also diversify the risk of inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, there there are Treasury and protect inflation protected securities, which are bonds. They're called TIPS. And they deliver a lower yield, um, but one of the that is guaranteed against the erosion of inflation. Um, so you can buy individual tips from directly from Security uh, Treasury Direct.gov, or you can hold them through a mutual fund that specializes in inflation protected bonds. But I would warn you, yeah. those are typically long term bonds. So what that means is. You know, if interest rates go up, they have a lot more interest rate risk. So you're picking up quite a bit of risk when you put tips in your portfolio. So you have to weigh that out yeah. over B- your goals. Bonds can be tricky. I mean, they are tricky. Um, they are. Most people think, you, you know, they're guaranteed to get positive returns all the time. That's just not the case. So, you know, you want to keep short-term, high-quality, you know, maybe some foreign uh, bonds in there, offer some diversification. But be careful. They call it the yield curve. Be careful going too long-term because you can realize some some losses in bonds, and then some of them can be very significant. So that's true. All right. Good topic. And that leads up to our break here, though. If you have questions, you can email us at info at moneymd.net, or you can give us a call at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. You're listening to Money MD with John and Steve. We'll be right back after these messages. Stay with us. Welcome back to Money MD, where the money doctors are in the house. I'm Steve Marbert, a certified financial planner, and I'm here with John Travis, who is a Dave Ramsey preferred local provider. And we are um, starting a new topic here, but we're going to start off here, though, with the prescription of the week. Yeah, Steve, I had a, a, a meeting with a, um, uh, a lady who was going through a divorce um, this last okay. week and sitting down with her, helping her on the budgeting side of it. She's never done the financials in her house. Just really no experience, um, have no idea how to budget. And so one of the right. things we talked about is when you do budget, you've got to budget for non-routine expenses. And what I mean by that are, um, you know, car repairs, gifts, um, vacations, things like that that you know you're going to spend, 
but you're not spending it that month. So that's right. Every single month, if you have a separate account and you take aside a hundred, two hundred, three hundred dollars for all these non-routine expenses, when they happen, not if they happen, but when they happen, you can just write a check from the separate account and just motor on. But people forget these non-routine expenses, and that's what busts the budget a lot of times. That's exactly right. I've always estimated that to be about ten percent of a person's budget. Mm-hmm. You know, if you work out your budget and you're just barely making ends meet with your routine expenses, then you're probably falling behind about ten percent a year. Yeah, that's you know, that's you, very you, good rule of thumb. You've got to have another ten percent going away, like you said, for all the non-routine stuff that just come up. You know, during the course of the year. Yeah, like uh, I think she says she has a life insurance payment that's due in like January, and so you take one twelfth of yeah. that and you put it aside, and when it happens next January, then you pay it. Yeah, you that's know? right. It's tough to remember all that stuff, and then you got Christmas and you yeah. got you yeah. know birthday gifts and things. She you has just four can't. kids, and they have you know activity. I mean, it's just there's a lot of non-routine expenses that sneak sure up is. on people. There sure is. That's a good one. All right, that leads up to our last topic here of the day, and that is the double dipping pensioner are bleeding New Jersey dry. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what is poor Chris Christie up there? He's trying to <laughs> salvage the pension plan for the state. And, uh, and the you bridge. Know, you know, the unions, I mean, I think the unions are part of the problem. Yeah. But, yeah, we're going to dig into it here. Yeah, and, Steve, you know, when we sit down and do planning for people um, that have pensions today, if you're in the pension system you're, you're probably and you're getting payouts, you're probably okay, may not have any inflation adjustments. Um, but I tell you, there's a lot of uh, writings on the wall with pensions. They're not um, they're not paying out what they are promising to pay out in a lot of cases. Particularly government pensions. That's right. That's you know, right. A lot of these, uh, I mean, they're changing them too. But uh, a lot of these state pension plans mm-hmm. and municipal pension plans, I mean, are getting in trouble. Uh, they are, and you know, there's no single cause for the public pension crisis threatening the financial stability of states, counties, and local, uh, you know, governments across the U.S. Instead. You know, its origins more closely resemble an, uh, an actuarial version of the notorious death by a thousand cuts. So it's not one thing that's causing this. It's a lot of little things that are adding up. And That's right. You know, fingers of blame can be pointed at uh, self-serving politicians who, who doled out generous benefits to public employee unions, you know, seeking the support at the polls in return. Uh, union leaders are certainly accountable as well, accepting short-term per- perks without seeing the potential long-term harm in some of the negotiations they were going through. So a lot of different things are adding up here, and it's creating issues. Yeah, and, you know, structural issues have also played an important role in this. I mean, not the least uh, problematic was the reality that the value of the pension fund assets are are, are tied to the fate of the often volatile stock markets, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, then there's the myriad of loopholes that, are an outright scam, such as the age-old tactic of public employees loading up on overtime while approaching retirement to artificially goose up their final payout. Yeah. So there's lots of things that play into this, but, um, yeah, I mean, they're in trouble. Yeah, and, you know, on and on and on, you know, such the vast majority of state pension plans are underfunded. I mean, meaning that they don't have enough assets to cover their current liabilities. Um, and here's an astounding stat here. This kind of puts in perspective. An annual report issued earlier this month by the uh, Wilshire Consulting Group found that 96% of 134 state pension plans examined were underfunded mm. and that on average those plans had enough assets to cover just 70% of their obligations. Yeah, you know, and you contrast that to corporate pension funds. I just read this the other day because I had a, a client that emailed me a question about those and I looked it up and the average 
corporate pension plan, I believe, in the article I saw was about 87% funded. Mm-hmm. So, much better you know, position. much better position, but 70%, yeah, I mean, they're they're definitely way underfunded on average. Yeah, so this article is about New Jersey, but quite frankly, this applies. Anybody that's listening out there, if you have a pension or have a family member that has a pension, you might want to listen up because um, this is going to get tricky. In, in New Jersey, where the state pension plan is underfunded, um, to the tune of about $52 billion, and that's a, uh, according to Governor Chris Christie. And there's a movement afoot to stop the bleeding from at least one of those thousand cuts. So they're trying to start to address this. And in this case, the wound is a loophole in the state law. Um, some people say it's a scam, depending on who you ask. But it allows public employees to retire with a pension from one job, then promptly rejoin the government payroll at a full salary while still collecting the pension. And that that practice is known as double dipping. Right. Yeah, I mean the general public doesn't doesn't feel it's appropriate, and you know we don't feel it's appropriate. This person, uh, Senator Jennifer Beck, says she doesn't feel it's appropriate. You know, an exhaustive investigation by the uh, <clears throat> uh, website, the New Jersey Watchdog Group found that double-dipping is widespread, bipartisan, and expensive. The site's findings included 80 retired public police officers who landed other government jobs after retiring and collecting a combined $12.8 million a year, um, about $7 million in salaries, and another $5.8 million in pension payments. So, you know, they were seriously double-dipping because they collected almost as much in pension as they did in salaries yeah. when they made that transition. And the list goes on. There's 17 county sheriffs um, and 29 undersheriffs that are taking doing this double-dipping. There's 45 retired school superintendents, um, which are doing, you know, taking both pension and salary. Uh, Most significantly, perhaps, the New Jersey Watchdog revealed that 18 double-dipping state legislators, including the leadership members from both parties, um, are being paid, you know, over $800,000 in combined pensions. And there's actually one New Jersey senator, he's a uh, Democrat, Fred uh, Madden, he receives three separate government checks totaling nearly $250,000. Good grief. Yeah, I mean, it's You just, wonder why these pensions are hurting. It's, it's just crooked. Yeah, this New Jersey watchdog group, they said, you know, those 18 legislators are, the, are primarily, the primary reason reform efforts have stalled despite a growing outcry by taxpayers. You know, the people empowered to change the system are on, in on the deal, he yeah. said. You know, it's yeah. so ingrained in the system, it's it's viewed as an entitlement. You know, they don't see anything wrong with it. None of them. You know, for years, Republican State Senator Jennifer Beck has been the lone voice in the wilderness on the issue of double dipping. Beck introduced a bill to ban the reform practice in 2011 and has introduced similar bills each year. But, you know, to me, John, the problem really is the pension plan. Mm-hmm. You know, it allows them to take to, to retire too early mm-hmm. with too much pension. You know, I mean, yeah. you should you should be have to be like sixty two or sixty or something to retire. Yeah, you know, not in your fifties when you're still you know feel like going back to work. Well, and you look at some of the the, the government institutions when you look at the federal government, the post office. Um, I'm sorry, the post office can't afford to pay pensions now. People that are in the system and they've Fine. worked and you know yeah, they're getting a pension. They should get their pension, but the post office can't afford a pension going forward and, and paying health care medical. It's just, you just can't, you just can't do it. I mean, um, so, you know, this, uh, the Senator goes on to say it's something that, um, that needs to be corrected. The concept is when you retire at a point in life and you're no longer able to work, then a pension's there to support you. So that's kind of her stance. 
double dipping erodes the fabric of the pension system and the uh, the basis on which it was founded. And Beck's take on double dipping is more um, nuanced than most taxpayers. Um, you know, it's she says that the practice is entirely legal, um, and that the state retirees certainly deserve their pensions. But there's a balance here. I mean, there really you know. is. Yeah. Yeah, you know, my answer, just the short of it is, John, I think there needs to be automatic enrollment, 401k plans, and no pension plans for government employees, right? Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I think that's that's where we are. And, yeah, I mean, you sign up, and I mean, it, but automatically, you know, I mean, it's always been like, I mean, people, they won't... They won't save for themselves, right? I mean, they won't try. So the pension plans are set up for people, just like Social Security, set up, you know, for people to make it idiot-proof so that you retire mm-hmm. and you got, you know, you're not going to starve to death. Yep. And people aren't smart enough to do it for themselves. Yep. Well, I think you just need to make 401k plans a little more automatic, you know, so that the default is the money goes in there. you got to elect out. You can't touch it. No hardship withdrawals, nothing. You know, to your 59 or 60 years old, mm-hmm. and, you know, the money's there. I don't know. And I know some corporations have actually do, done that. When you enroll with the company, they'll automatically put you in the 401K, and then they actually have a step change. They'll increase your yeah. contributions by a percent per year. That's the way it ought to be, it to really, get you up to 10% or something. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but, yeah, I mean, you need to <clears> – <throat> it needs to be by default. You're going to get 10% of your salary is going to go in your 401K plan. Yeah. And then – I would just do it with these hardship withdrawals. I just don't think they're just not smart. Yeah, they're doing more harm than good. They are. I mean, people are just taking hardship withdrawals to, you know, pay off their mortgage or do whatever they want to do. And they're, just, they're doing silly stuff with it. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, I mean, just trying to start a business or something, they'll clean out their retirement account. Yeah. And then they're left with nothing when it doesn't work out. So, yeah, it's a tough story, but we're going to hear more and more of that, I think, from no other doubt. states, no unfortunately. Doubt. Okay, well, this has been this week's edition of Money MD with John and Steve. Tune in next Saturday from 9 to 10 a.m. to hear more prescriptions for your financial health. And do check us on our website, moneymd.net. We'd love to hear your questions. Email us at info at moneymd.net or give us a call, John and Steve at Richard Young Associates at 706-739-0725. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Have a good one. Material on this program is intended for general information only and should not be taken as specific investment, tax, or legal advice. None of the information contained in this broadcast is intended by the host to be a solicitation for the purchase or sale of any security. Endorsed Local Provider is an endorsement of customer service only and does not reflect quality of investment decisions and is not connected to investment returns. Further information is available by contacting Richard Young Associates, a registered investment advisor, securities sold through Independent Financial Group, LLC, member of FINRA and SIPC.